or not, Walmart is a dominant force in the American economy. 90% of Americans live within 10 miles of one of its stores. The big box store chain has been so successful at driving out its competitors that some small town residents are virtually dependent on Walmart's goods. So what happens when Walmart picks up and leaves? In 2016, PBS NewsHour spoke with residents of Winsboro, South Carolina, after the store suddenly closed its doors. We thought yeah. it was a prankster at first. I said, Walmart closing? That's the only store we have around here. I think that the, the customers deserve to know something. You know, I spent a lot of money at Walmart. For nearly 20 years, the store had served as the town's one-stop shop the place where residents could buy groceries, fill their prescriptions, or just catch up with their neighbors. Oh, if you wanted to see anybody, just come to Walmart. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, we look at how Walmart impacts all our lives and what it leaves behind. I do believe if you ask the majority of the population, they will say that the Walmart did owe, the, the corporation did owe something because of the way they impacted the communities. You know, some, something that will help us revitalize to get back to where we were before Walmart came. Christine Lebusky and Nick Copeland agree. Their book, The World of Walmart, Discounting the American Dream, talks about Walmart's role in American life. Christine and Nick, you started out and got interested in Walmart because of a gig you had when you were in grad school. Tell us about that. Yeah, we worked side jobs as market researchers, uh, sometimes together and sometimes separately. There was one job in particular at a Walmart where our job was to count how many people left the store, and their concern with this particular study was to see how many people left with something in their hands. It doesn't matter what. And it turns out that the closure rate at these Walmarts was like 95 or plus percent. I mean, everybody was leaving with something. And then these few people, we would try to ask them, well, why didn't you buy something? And one of them was like, I'm here to return something that I, a Walmart gift card. I don't like Walmart at all, but it's something that somebody gave me, but I don't want to shop here, and I'm just here to return that card. I hate Walmart. And so you see, just in that moment, this really deep contrast among the public about Walmart, where you have everybody going there. It's like a stampede of people, and then you have this countercurrent of people that's like, I hate this place. I detest it completely. Did the two of you have a view of Walmart at that time? Did you have an attitude about it? Yes, I, I certainly did. Um, I didn't support the company. I didn't shop there. I, you know, I, I didn't spend my money there and, ha you know, had some conflicts about what that meant for me to be basically taking their money because I was <laughs> they were paying the company that was paying me. Right. But what I think happened um, and the book is a product of to some degree is that we we learned a lot by spending so much time in the store. And, and my my views and beliefs um, were complicated, certainly. And I grew up in Texas, which is really, you know, part of Walmart's expansion in the 1990s. My little brother worked there for many years. And I kind of grew up hating Walmart, but also shopping there and thinking of Walmart as kind of a low class place at the same time that it was the only thing around. So by the time we were in grad school, we kind of see it as this behemoth that's destroying cities and it's bad for labor. And at the same time, we're kind of fascinated with it for it, you know, its power and it's also its interest in research, all these kind of reasons. What are some of the things that you noticed about the people who worked and shopped there? Yeah, um, 
I did one project interviewing people at the pharmacy, and that was a real turning point for me. It was that visit where I really saw people in conversation with their pharmacist. I saw I, I was there for long days by myself, um, these two long days and into the evening, and I really saw a, a kind of a community. I saw people who were coming in after work um, with their kids, just shopping, looked like they were having fun, you know. Um, and that was, a, for me, a moment where I had to start rethinking what I thought the store was. When I started thinking about Walmart as, as you know, what anthropologists or soci- social scientists call like a space or a place, you know, something was happening there. Um, and that was important for me to see, I think. And in terms also of the people who are at Walmart, I mean, primarily it's, you know, middle class and working class folks. I would say lower middle class and working class, including a lot of people that we could call poor. And Walmart gets a lot of flack for that because one of the major criticisms of Walmart, kind of the more popular criticism, the one that I grew up with, was that the people who shop at Walmart, that they're degraded, that they're trashy, that they're poor, that they have no taste, and that that's why they're there. And I think that you know, Walmart, in its credit, is a very open and democratic space. I mean, everybody's welcome at Walmart, which is also one of the major reasons why Walmart is criticized. I think that that's not one of the reasons that Walmart should be criticized. I think there are other reasons, of course, but I think that one of the elements that they're providing spaces for people who mm-hmm. don't necessarily have anywhere else to go. I mean, in our society, if you're going to be out and about, you need to be in a consumer space, and that's kind of that's kind of the reality. And Walmart's doors are, you know, it's as it's as democratic as any other institution in society, with exception of perhaps you know some public schools and and churches. How did Walmart come to be so wildly successful in the beginning? It grew in the Sun Belt South, and it expanded alongside government investments in military bases and, you know, different military manufacturers and those kind of investments that were happening, you know, kind of in the Ozark region. And it really grew and provided a retail um, space for people who didn't have any kind of shopping. It was kind of rural. It was a very white area. It grew and it really adopted a vision of the Christian family. They took this idea of the family and brought it into the store so that workers really thought of themselves as kind of a cohesive unit, Um, and particularly bringing in a lot of women, a lot of low-wage workers or people who were looking for maybe a second salary for the family in the 1970s and 80s, and it really gave them kind of a space to be earning money, but also where a lot of the kind of cultural norms of southern rural Arkansas really became part of a management strategy. Nick, you saw firsthand how much some people love Walmart when you were living and teaching in Arkansas. What's it like in the home of Walmart? It's really interesting. Uh, Even among quite progressive groups, it's very difficult to criticize Walmart openly. Uh, Walmart does a lot of local philanthropy. The, The basketball arena is the Bud Walton Arena. There's the Walton Arts Foundation. There's all these things locally that give Walmart a kind of prestige and a cachet. They're also the major funder for the university that we work for. They provided a huge part of their endowment. So there's a little bit of a sacred cow relationship to Walmart in the Bentonville, Fayetteville region. Mm-hmm. It's also the site of the annual meeting for all of corporate Walmart, right? 
Yes, it is. So the corporate headquarters are in Bentonville, Arkansas, and the meeting is held on the campus of the University of Arkansas. It's the first week of June every year, so the students are gone. And every store in the world is allowed to send two associates to the meeting. And so for, I think it's four days or five days, um, the whole town is full of Walmart associates. And there's a, there's a large picnic. There are concerts. The last year that we were there, this group called Our Walmart, who uh, were a group of associates that were really starting to agitate for some change within the company, um, they also had quite a presence. And so the shareholders meeting was real interesting because there were all these associates, again, from, from all over the world. And there was also at the time, the last time that we were there, um, a, a kind of an emerging presence of some resistance and some, some pushback um, from the Our Walmart folks as well. So how do we reconcile the Walmart that markets itself as a conservative and religious fundamentalist form of Americanism with the one that promotes free enterprise and denigrates the lifestyle of its own workers? They would certainly disagree with at least part of that characterization, and they would say that their workers are associates, that they're part of a Walmart family, and that they're part of Walmart Nation, and that they love them, and that they're their most valuable resource. And would you say that in some ways that is true? No, and and I think that one way to answer that question is maybe to say that we don't reconcile those two Walmarts, right? That we shouldn't reconcile those two Walmarts because they shouldn't be reconciled. But I think that this group of workers who have been challenging the company, they specifically focus on this word respect because respect for the worker is one of Walmart's core values. You can actually still find it on their website. This group took that word especially and said, look, this is your language, not ours, and we are not respected. And we're not respected economically. We're not respected as parents. We're not respected as people who have to go to the doctor or who need a day off or um, who's you know who don't have enough health insurance, who want to go to college. Um, we're not respected in those ways, and we challenge you to sort of live up to your own rhetoric. How hard did workers at Walmart over the years begin to try to fight for more rights? So they were never unionized, but there is this group, Our Walmart. Even that name, Our Walmart, sounds as though they're trying to placate management in order to coax out more human benefits and wages. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that there are people who work for Walmart who would like to continue to work for Walmart, you know, sometimes because it's one of the few jobs available in their area, but they perceive this fundamental contradiction between a company that says we respect you as workers so much so that we call you associates rather than workers, right? Um, But we won't tell you what your schedule is going to be until a week before you're supposed to work it, right? Um, We are going to cut your hours at the last minute. We're going to have you work four hours in the morning, go home for four hours, and then come back for four hours hours in the evening. We're going to give you a split shift. You know, these were things that were really rampant um, in this company. I mean, there were there were terrible stories about Walmart in the 90s and the early 2000s, um, locking workers in, for example. I mean, that was one of the most extreme versions. But these members who, um, who joined this group, I think it, it isn't so much about Walmart is bad. It's we do see, at least we perceive a, a contradiction between your rhetoric and how we're treated. And we would like to keep our jobs here, but we would like those jobs to be better. You know, of course, we're at a time in American society where union membership is down. That's partially a result of legislation that has been passed um, at the national level. Walmart grew up in a right-to-work state, which is really a state that makes it more difficult for people to form a union based on the idea that certain individuals 
who may benefit from a union or would benefit from a union don't necessarily have to join, and so they can become free riders, and that ultimately decreases the ability of unions to have any power. Now, certain individual rights may be respected if they don't believe in everything the union's doing, but their collective identity as workers is becoming less powerful. Walmart has um, been indicted for threatening workers. And really one of the major threats to people who are organizing union is really the implicit threat that if a union forms here, you're all going to get fired. As employees are hired at a Walmart, they're subjected to a barrage of Mm anti-union propaganda through their training process. If employees do start to get the numbers up to try to form a union, the company calls for an election which means that they run a very intensive, serious campaign, I mean, that's directed from Bentonville to stamp out that union and to present the union as anathema to everything in American society, to say that people are going to have their rights trampled, things that union activists say would be complete falsehoods, but people really get intimidated out of organizing. But this is also a trend that you see across retail in American society. You see unions going down and down. Walmart is both a beneficiary of an anti-union legal climate and one of the major proponents of anti-union legislation. I was reading that as companies like Walmart and Amazon um, use more robots and automate their processes, in some ways the workers that remain become more efficient. But a smaller slice of the income that they produce for the company goes to the worker. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that we all should have very open eyes about the very real number of workers that are going to be displaced, right? Not maybe going to be, but most likely going to be displaced. And some people who talk about that say that this is why we need to start thinking about things like a universal basic income, right? Because there's just not going to be the amount of work. And I think that's a huge you know, question. Um, one of the ways that Walmart is using um, robots right now is that they're using them to scan the store. So they um, they have sort of shelf level robots that move around the store to notice, um, you know, products that are out of place or shelves that are empty or look like they're getting low. Um, and, uh, and the way that they talk about this on their website is that our associates are freed up to now provide more customer service, right? So that's the way they package it is to say, well, we have a lot of robots in the store and they're doing the work that associates used to do, which was to scan the shelves. You know, workers used to do this with their own eyes and um, and find problems and then fix the problems. Well, now the robots find the problems and that just, just, that just frees up associates to help you. I don't know how recently you've been in a Walmart, but, you know, the times that I've been in in the last couple of years of my life, it's it's often quite hard to find an associate <laughs> that, um, that could provide me with any kind of help. And that's not a complaint um, about the workers. But I think we know that more robots and more automation in these stores is not going to lead to um, happier workers who are more available to help customers. It's going to be fewer people working in the stores. You know, Back in the 1930s and 40s when we used to think about automation, I mean, there was this dream that it would increase leisure time. <laughs> and I think that this is what you know Christine's talking about with this idea of the universal basic income. If, if we had a collective ownership of robots or of these kind of forces of production, then that would mean that humans could spend their time making art or poetry or 
that they could be enjoying things or taking more leisure time, spending more times. But what we see happening is that robots and different kinds of machinery are used against working people because it ultimately is making the value of their labor less valuable to the point to where actual working people are superfluous. I mean, at some point and not the too distant future, there won't be any real associates or there won't be any real workers left in Walmarts. It will be an automated process. I mean, Amazon is one step along that. Of course, there are the the hidden workers and we don't see anybody in the in the Amazon uh, the warehouses, but they're there, of course. But the move is to extricate itself completely from the reliance on human beings. But what happens to human beings then in that equation? What happens in a society where if you don't have a job, then you don't have anything? What a fascinating view that we've come from our 50 years of the evolution of Walmart to now maybe we're approaching a post-Walmart world and it's forcing us to rethink what do we want to look like when it comes to you know the lives of our people right I think that is just beautifully put and I think this is why it was such a compelling topic for us as cultural anthropologists and as people who were interested in things like power and labor and gender and race we looked at this company and this store and thought oh my god it tells us so much about who we are um, the it's almost unchecked expansion has shown us so much thinking about you know save money live better right Walmart slogan um, I think one of the things we're trying to think about and provoke is is really save money the part that we want alongside live better right we can leave the live better, right? but we can think really actively about um, what are some other ways that we can live better besides saving money, right? Um, saving money, if that's our key to living better, that's saying a lot um, about our relationship to the market and about who we are as human beings. Christine Lebusky and Nick Copeland are professors of sociology at Virginia Tech. Their book is The World of Walmart, Discounting the American Dream. Coming up next, the author of Is This Place Great or What? After 9-11, Brian Ulrich spent a decade photographing the landscape of consumerism across the United States. He took photos in enormous big box stores, vacant shopping malls, and thrift stores, capturing the blank stares of shoppers and the mountains of stuff in front of them. His book is called Is This Place Great or What? Brian teaches photography at Virginia Commonwealth University. You know, there was this tragedy that happened where everybody understood what was going on and everybody was grieving. And it was not long after that that the dialogue within the culture started to shift towards fear and kind of like, look out and they're coming again and the bad guys are out to get us, which, you know, there is truth mix in there, certainly. But in all of that came this kind of rhetoric of, of shopping. And and I thought that was just such a strange imperative to declare on the citizens of the United States to go out and shop. And, and I was really curious about that. It seemed like a very opposite kind of reaction. Like I had grown up with stories of World War II and the way that this country pulled together its resources at that time. So to have the rhetoric shift to kind of spend and and kind of move back into your selfishness as a way to rebuild was a very strange thing. So that was really what my curiosity was. I wanted to see if people were actually doing that. And what did you find? <laughs> well, the funny thing is I kind of quickly answered my question, which was, yes, they were. 
um, every sail was a kind of red, white, and blue sail, and there were plenty of flags and ribbon magnets, and this became the whole rhetoric around shopping um, at that time, it seems. I realized that my little curiosity was a lot bigger and that there was something hugely much more profound at stake and that there was a kind of moment that was happening, which was um, that our whole kind of economic structure of this country was built into this idea of, of, um, of spending and, and consumerism. So I kind of was this moment of almost like after a week of going to stores and realizing that, whoa, this was hugely more profound than I had what what I initially come here for. And I kind of felt like I just had to see how far I could go with this. So name the kinds of stores you started walking into and out of. Were you at first deliberately going to only the so-called big box stores? Um, I grew up in Long Island, New York, so this big box store thing was a really different thing for me. I was fascinated with that whole idea of of just a huge giant box that was filled with everything you would conceivably want. But it was really interesting because those places were so homogenized. For instance, a Target in Las Vegas is the same as a Target in Granger, Indiana, is the same as... um, short pump. So what was the experience for you like to deliberately go in time and time and time again? It's certainly strange. It's a very weird thing to spend a lot of time behind the camera staring at things or people or it looks weird. And it is weird to go to a big box store and sit there or a mall with no imperative other than to observe because there's so many psychological subtleties happening in these spaces. And that's what photography can actually do is you can see these psychological moments happening. There's a heavy amount of decision-making that happens in picking up the thing and deciding, do I actually need it? It's all happening so fast. One specific example would be the picture in the book that's a a young woman who's standing in front of an aisle of cheese in a grocery store, and she's talking on the cell phone, sunglasses on her head, purse in hand, empty cart behind her. So What's kind of wonderful about this simple little moment is that she's kind of also, her whole body language is actually kind of reeling back away from the wall of of choice that is before her. There's so many of these in your book that I love. I mean, this great one, for instance. Uh Uh-huh. This is, describe this. Uh, Well, on the cover of the book, there's a photograph of uh, a young woman who was working at a thrift store in Seattle, Washington, and she's really kind of totally surrounded by a giant pile of used donation clothes, this kind of wall of color and garments and stuff. Um, you know, the thrift chapter of, of, of the book moved into the idea of, of course, as much as we buy things, those things have to go somewhere. They have, there has to be a repository for those things. Middle class casts off all their used things. They end up in this space. The guilt is absolved, but of course, like the mountain of stuff is tremendous and profound and, and, and a real problem that people have to deal with all the time. You have a picture in there, for instance, of a wall of computers, sort of early generation computers. Yeah. And it's depressing because you realize nobody can use or wants those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I first made that picture, I used to go to the Apple store in Chicago and put that on all the screensavers. <laughs> <laughs> it would last about five minutes, but yeah. Uh, 
it seemed to me that thrift is an allegory for a culture that sets in place um, a remedy for a system, right? So that the people in the thrift stores and the thrift stores themselves are the ones to solve these kind of last level problems of, well, we make too much stuff, you kind of deal with it, right? So in other words, you know, upper and middle classes get to reap all the rewards and benefits of new products. Lower income gets to basically kind of glean from what's left behind. And the way the thrift stores are jammed, they can't even glean because they can't even process what they see. No, they can. It's incredibly, yeah. In your final section of the book, you look at big box stores after the fall. Yeah. Um, that was something that actually I had in mind all the way back to 2005. I remember writing some notes about the fact that this economic model was um, really, really unsustainable and that that the final chapter of this project would be empty stores because of what was happening economically in, in the U.S. I've seen some big box stores that went empty, but you must have seen a gazillion. <laughs> Many, yes. All these things are weird because, you know, you go and you travel across the country to see a closed Target, and then you realize it's the same as the one that's down the street from where you left. The landscape of this country was really pumped up on this idea that that this model would be, would last forever and would continue to profit. And it, as it shrunk, it shrunk so fast that so many places became empty so quickly. There's a photograph in the book of what seems to be, at first glance, a well-to-do interior shopping mall where you're seeing some, some plant life, some greenery, a, a, a grand escalator, a lot of light in there. And then, of course, it's completely empty. The fountains are dry. The escalators are walled off, so you actually can't use them. The signage is gone. You know, there's something amiss. Something's happened here. And this was actually a shopping mall in Akron, Ohio, that I used to go to when I was an undergraduate student living there. And then other spaces, of course, were much further along in the process. A mall in Harvey, Illinois, which recently just got demolished completely after being sitting abandoned for almost 40 years. Now we see this picture of it, and it looks like a scene from the Titanic. Everything is kind of dripping away. You can see rust and iron and debris. And um, What's your reaction to the closure of so many of these big box stores, this trend toward closure? It's kind of nice to see them just go back to being a landscape again. In many cases, there is a lot of beauty in these places and a lot of beauty, hopefully, in the pictures, especially towards the end where greenery comes in and, and starts to take over. Sadly, often what happens is that even if a place gets bulldozed, it's bulldozed with the intention of turning it into a new version of its old self. And if, as if they figured it out this time, this model will really work and it'll be the one that lasts and brings all the, the tax revenue and jobs and it'll save save us and bring us shiny new products in the meantime. You know, I think Victor Gruen, the Swiss architect who worked on some of the earliest shopping malls in the United States, he really didn't see these so much as profit centers, but as community centers. And he really wanted to make this idea of a community enclosed where people would come together. But of course, as soon as 
people realized how much profit was to be made at these places, why would they actually have like a stage for a musical performance when they can have like a kiosk that could sell cell phone wrappers? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Things we need. Yes. Brian Ulrich teaches photography at Virginia Commonwealth University. His book is called, Is This Place Great or What? This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. Before the early 1900s, the border between Mexico and the United States was essentially open. And in small numbers, people would move back and forth for work in Texas. But migration patterns and policies drastically changed in the period between 1905 and 1920. Daniel Morales is a professor of history at James Madison University and the author of The Making of Mexican America. He says migration in this period is rooted in local communities. So early on, the migration across the border was pretty informal. Nobody was saying, excuse me, show me your papers. No. The United States effectively did have open borders for the first hundred years of American history. The change really started with the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1888, when the United States started to enforce a ban against a people solely based upon their race. Chinese immigrants were brought in during the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, but this also scared a lot of Americans as they saw Chinese people as people who were not assimilating. And so there was a movement to ban all Chinese workers. In order to do this, you needed things that had not existed before, things like passports, strong border checks. You also needed, for the first time, a bureaucracy that would deport people from within the United States, something the United States had never really done before. And it wasn't until the 1920s that you start to see the modern border go up. So were Mexicans caught up in this targeting of Chinese immigrants at that same time when the law changed? Not at first. The border between Mexico and the U.S. remained relatively open for many generations with people crossing back and forth, both Mexicans and Native Americans in large numbers. The shift happened because of World War I. The U.S. economy boomed, and all of a sudden you need a lot of workers. And so the U.S. government encouraged Mexicans to come into the United States and created the first version of the Brazil program that brought in about 73,000 Mexicans to work. Recruiting was done by labor agents. And what would they do? They would be at a port of entry, a place like El Paso, Laredo, Texas, and they would be handing out flyers saying, come work for us, come join the Holmes Company. I will take you to work for the Santa Fe Railroad. People would tell their family members. If a person went and worked in the United States, he would send back money to Mexico or he would send back a letter describing his work and his life inside the United States. If he went back to Mexico and visited a town, he might look like somebody who had made it, right? He had American dollars. So people would see that and want to go there. Before this point, most migration was from northern Mexico. But it's really in the 1910s and 1920s that migration from central Mexico skyrockets. Why? 
part of this was the this area was the area that had been perhaps the most changed by Porfirio Diaz during his long rule as a dictator of Mexico. Peasants lost access to their own lands and now had to work for somebody else. These changes brought about mass discontentment and the conditions that led to the Mexican Revolution, where people rose up and overthrew Porfirio Diaz. About one million people died in that revolution. During this period, about 500,000 people left Mexico and came into the United States, and over the next decade, another 500,000 would come. Now, while we think of migration as a transnational phenomenon, it's really deeply rooted in the local communities that really exist. So it's in certain cities, but not all cities. Right. In one of the towns I look at, Villa Juarez, today, two-thirds of the people who were born there are currently in the United States, about half divided between Texas and the greater Chicago area. How large is that area? How many people is two-thirds? Maybe 5,000 people are living there today. So around 15,000 were born there and 10,000 of those are in the United States. Within the generation, it was considered normal for people to go to the United States. Kind of shows some of the limits of the Mexican economy. Say the same person wanted to stay in Mexico and get a job in the new factories of Mexico City, they wouldn't be able to because they didn't have the connections. So you have this awkward situation that for a lot of people... It is, in fact, easier to move a thousand miles and get a job in Los Angeles than it is for you to break into the job market of Mexico City. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yes. It also, to some extent, shows the hierarchies of Mexican society, where getting ahead depends upon who you know. What about the Great Depression? Did the same Mexican migration continue unabated during that period? Um. Immigration effectively ended overnight with the collapse of the American economy. It was very difficult for new immigrants to find jobs. But public opinion also turned very much against the immigrants that were already in the United States. Public opinion blamed them for the joblessness. And so there were calls to deport all of the Mexicans. Within a few years, 400,000 people were rounded up and sent away to Mexico. This was the largest expulsion of people from the country in American history up until that point. About 40% of them were in fact U.S. citizens. Now, when World War II starts, the United States effectively reverses course again. All of a sudden, 15 million people join the U.S. armed forces. The U.S. economy goes through the roof. And Mexican workers are seen as the solution to the vast labor needs. And so Mexico and the United States sign what is now known as the Bracero Program. It was a way to get laborers without having to deal with the cost of them having to become immigrants to the United States. The program would hire people in Mexico at hiring centers, uh, the U.S. government would pay for the, bringing them into the United States. They would be given over to employers. After their contract ended, they would be put on a train and be sent back to Mexico. So the United States would get all the benefits of guest workers without any of the cost of immigrants that wanted to live in the country. 
What do you think this part of our history tells us about what we're going through now? I think part of it is Americans don't think too deeply about how things in the present are shaped by the past. There's also a tendency to think of Mexican migration as new, as something that has only happened in this generation. Perhaps there's also a tendency to look at old immigrants, those of 100 years ago or 200 years ago, the Ellis Island immigrants as perhaps the good immigrants and the immigrants of today as perhaps not as good, right? Mexicans, they were the largest immigrant group coming in the early 20th century, yet they never became part of the narrative. And part of that is because American opinion turned so much against Mexican immigrants in the early 20th century. Where do you think we're headed? I think there are different possibilities. There's a tendency by, I think, especially uh, people who are supporting of the Democratic Party to think that demographics are destiny, that within a handful of years, there's going to be a majority-minority country, and that this will ensure a cosmopolitan democratic majority for all of time. I think that's wrong. The hope isn't in national politics. It's in small towns. And really, the answer to fear of an immigrant is to get to know an immigrant, to work with them, to see them every single day, opens up people's world to view. Daniel Morales, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much for having me here. Daniel Morales is a professor of history at James Madison University and the author of the forthcoming book, The Making of Mexican America. Coming up next, understanding Appalachia through its labor history. In 2018, nearly 20,000 public school teachers and employees organized to shut down schools in all 55 counties in West Virginia. They were striking over low pay and high health care costs. Elizabeth Catt is a public historian and author of What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia and co-editor of 55 Strong, Inside the West Virginia Teacher Strike. Josh Howard is a public historian. They joined me to talk about parts of Appalachian history that are misunderstood and even erased, especially when it comes to labor history. You're looking at history everywhere, but especially in the Appalachian region these days. Are you both from Appalachia? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll roll first. So um, I'm from a little town called Clifton Forge, which is in Allegheny County, which is in really the central western part of Virginia. And then I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, which is um, near the Smoky Mountains. And so um, my perception of Appalachia, I like to talk about because it's it's radically different in some ways from what people think when they imagine Appalachia. Um, My Appalachia is Dolly Parton, for example, which is a very recognizable symbol, but also the Oak Ridge National Laboratory where, you know, the atom bomb is made. So um, as a representative of a more urban Appalachia, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee is sort of a really complex and interesting place to look at. You wrote your book, What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia, in part to counter stereotypes that were spreading in the wildly popular other book, 
called Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was, you know, I was furious. I We had just moved to Texas, Josh and I, and everybody wanted to ask me a question about this book, Hillbilly Elegy. They wanted to kind of ask me what life was like in Appalachia, what people were doing politically to explain the political choices of the people back home. And it was like um, I was being told on for something that I didn't do. These conversations were antagonistic. They weren't friendly. They were hostile. They were judgmental. These were liberals wanting to know why you grew up in Appalachia. Absolutely. These were primarily college-educated white liberal people who um, had really seized on to this idea that this person had offered them an insider look at a deficient culture that was really closely connected to what was going on in our political moment to explain the political danger that they thought was about to befall them. Remind us of the kind of stereotypes that were swirling around as people were reading Hillbilly Elegy after the Trump election. So Hillbilly Elegy pulls from a very old stereotype that is not just levied against Appalachian people, but the idea that there is a culture of poverty and that people's low ambition um, can explain why they are unable to transcend class. And J.D. Vanceworth's book, as a transcender, a very powerful person, a very powerful figure in this conversation, um, and looking back in kind of like the rearview mirror as he's driving towards the American dream, is that the people in Appalachia are ultimately responsible for what has held them back due to certain moral and cultural failings. You know, living in this part of Texas where we were quite literally living and working in the shadow of oil refineries, right? And this horrible poverty that surrounded them and this horrible environmental devastation and environmental racism as well. Hillbilly Elegy could have been about Southeast Texas. It very well could have been. And I think there was something nefarious going on with those aforementioned Texas white liberals who were asking us, what is wrong with Appalachia? What's the problem with where you're from? What did you want to say about the politics and how much more complex the political leanings and beliefs of people are in this region than maybe we think they are? So I think what I've been struck um, with over the past two years is um, so much of, of our conversation is dominated by get out of your bubble this, with the assumption that if you got out of your bubble, you'll necessarily meet someone on the opposite end of the political spectrum. And what I like to show through Appalachian history is that there's lots of people um, who might be closer politically and philosophically than you might think in rural areas. I don't know if I wrote the book necessarily to help people understand, but rather to tell people that they were wrong, because it is a very frustrating experience and it is a particular uh, salient quality of Appalachian history that people who don't fit the stereotype are not only ignored, but actively erased from the past. So what do you mean by wrong when it comes to presumptions that this is Trump country and people are conservative and Republican, and that's the end of that story? Well, I would point to a couple of things. First would be um, kind of the fallacy of looking at electoral maps, you know, and seeing, you know, Appalachia's this giant set of red, when really, if you actually colored it in for people who didn't vote, then it would really just be largely electoral disinterest in lots of parts of Appalachia. And why is that disinterest there? I think um, it's largely because liberal politics, Democratic Party is generally, you know, removed themselves from union politics, from doing things that rural America cares about. The other answer I'd give is kind of the historical one, that if you looked at just the history of politics in Appalachia, it almost always voted Democrat up until very, very, very recently. And it's amazing to me that, 
you know, liberals today or people who read Hillbillyology and they actually liked it, um, they forget about that. They very much so forget that Southwest Virginia had a Democratic congressman for decades and decades and generations and generations because that congressman talked about unions and rural Virginia. Recently, of course, there has been the National Teachers Revolt. That actually, Josh, began in West Virginia and spread to other states. Do you think that that movement has its cultural political roots in West Virginia and Appalachia's tradition of fighting between workers and owners? I mean, I sure think they built on it. The teachers did an incredible job of tapping into that history, especially in the southern West Virginia coal fields. The union strong sentiment that was down in the coal fields and building on these big historical moments of West Virginia, like the Battle of Blair Mountain, where, you know, coal miners rose up and tens of thousands of coal miners marched against uh, the coal industry in the early 20th century uh, in, you know, Mingo and Wyoming and McDowell County and Logan County. Southern West Virginia, the teachers absolutely tapped into that to really build their coalition, build their solidarity, build 55 counties strong, right? Because it's hard to unite 55 people, much less 55 counties, much less 55 groups of teachers across those counties. I mean, when I went to West Virginia to talk to teachers over and over, what they wanted to tell me was how what they were doing was not just um, a union action. They were doing what was right. And their notion of what was right very much tapped into a deeper family history and a deeper regional history. They were saying that um, I learned how to strike from my mom, who was a teacher and went on strike in the 1990s. They were saying that I learned how to strike from my husband, who's in the United Mine Workers. I learned how to strike watching my dad participate in minor strikes in the 1980s and 1970s. Both my grandparents did this. I fantasized about doing this. It is a lot different than what I fantasized about, but it is the right thing to do, and I'm happy to do it. Teachers scaffolded their history into an active labor movement. Um, this is what people in West Virginia do. And we also need to keep in mind that right-to-work laws in West Virginia are relatively new, and that's made a big difference. How could you go from a state like West Virginia with the battles in the 1920s between miners and corporations, how could you go from a state like that to one that's a right-to-work state? I mean, this is sort of uh, the larger transformation that is really troubling, I think, rural politics. And if we look to these deeper discussions about why rural areas have turned conservative or why has there been a disinvestment from the Democrats in rural areas? I think a lot of it has to do with the way that we think about labor in this country, people's value to their communities, to their workplace, to their employers, to the system. Um, and we tend to favor the market politically in many of these scenarios. So we think that if someone um, is not making enough money, then they're not working hard enough. Or if we think that someone can't afford to live, it's okay. They just need to take a second job or it's okay to have employer mandated health insurance. So all of these kind of deep social issues that are rupturing society are given to us and, and we're handed, you know, kind of the market as a band-aid, this ambiguous concept that says that... If we work hard enough and if we have enough ambition and if we are doing things according to the formula for success, then we will be spared a bad fate or we'll be spared a, a deficient place in society. And fundamentally, that is not true. Josh, you're working on a book about a man named Bruce Crawford. 
tell me about discovering his writing and his politics. <laughs> sure. Um, so I discovered Bruce Crawford, uh, really, you know, just reading some books about West Virginia, about West Virginia politics. And I kept seeing this guy pop up um, in the early 1940s and him really challenging the governor about history. To cut to the chase, they were writing a guidebook to West Virginia, and there were questions about, well, what actually goes in a guidebook to a state? Like, what do you put in there? So there's some obvious things. You know, you want some tours of some cities. You want some driving tours. You want some general history of geography and plants and all that stuff. Um, but then it came down to, okay, now what do we say about industrialization? What do we say about companies, corporations, and what do we say about labor? That was the big question. And so Bruce, uh, Bruce Crawford, he had written this chapter that was about 22 pages long. It had things in it like the Hawks Nest Tunnel disaster, where a whole bunch of workers died of silicosis and their deaths were covered up by the corporation. Um, we talked about the aforementioned Battle of Blair Mountain, uh, which is when, you know, tens of thousands of coal miners in southern West Virginia rose up um, and essentially challenged, uh, went on strike, went on a massive violent strike, and they were attacked for it by the government. And so Bruce Crawford had written about all those things. And the governor, Homer Holt, um, didn't like it. He wanted him to purge it from the guidebook, even though the governor's office had nothing to do with the guidebook. He had no right to do that. But it becomes this gigantic political fight that involves, you know, Bruce Crawford, this like pretty small town former newspaper editor who had done some pretty big things, but he wasn't a major political figure by any stretch of the imagination versus this West Virginia political machine, this conservative Democrat machine. And it turns into a stalemate that is ultimately won by Crawford. He essentially outlasts um, Governor Holt. Uh, Holt leaves office, a more liberal Democrat is elected, and the labor chapter is published. And, you know, everybody's happy after that. Um, fun fact, Homer Holt goes on to be a, uh, a lawyer for Union Carbide, that same company who had covered up the Hawk's Nest tunnel disaster. So he had a pretty direct stake in all that. Why does it matter to us that we understand how complex these people are? I mean, it's fascinating. Why wouldn't you want to understand this? One of the best stories about Bruce Crawford is he goes across the line to Kentucky to give aid to striking miners and he gets shot. He gets shot and then he comes back and he writes like an indignant newspaper article about it saying like, shoot me again. I dare you to. At least, you know, I won't have to say I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And he's doing like wonderful kinds of political experimentation, thinking through very big, very weighty ideas about what the future will look like. He's decrying fascism before we even knew really what, what fascism was going to look like in that era. And so um, I think that it's helpful for you to know the political evolution of your ancestors. Yeah, I think, you know, Bruce Crawford is such a perfect representation of that, where in his world, politically speaking, there were conservative Republicans, some conservative Democrats, and then there were, um, you know, liberal Democrats, kind of like uh, uh, FDR. And Bruce Crawford is very much to that person that says, no, there is also a far left that I represent. There are far right people that he was challenging in his community. He is openly condemning forces like the KKK um, in his newspaper, um, which was a very dangerous and very brave thing to do at the time um, and today. Um, and I think that's important to recognize that there are those political predecessors and that if you have an idea today that seems radical or seems crazy, Bruce Crawford and people like him probably had it also like 80 or 90 years ago. Elizabeth and Josh, thanks for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Yeah, thank you.
Elizabeth Catt and Josh Howard are public historians. Catt is the author of What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia and co-editor of 55 Strong, Inside the West Virginia Teacher Strike. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had studio help this week from Bill Foy of Virginia Tech. Find us in your favorite podcast app or go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.